Hello and welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. My name's Alicia. Thanks for joining us today. Last time we took a trip back to the golden age of Hollywood, but today, Stacy, we're visiting the golden age of true crime. Who have you got for us? Today, I have O.J. Simpson prosecuting attorney Marsha Clark, who was going through a whole lot more during that trial than I think most of us realized. She really does have an amazing story. She's overcome a tremendous amount in her life. Before we get this episode started, let's take a minute to peer into our magic mirror and see who's joined us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces for ad-free and early episodes, bonus divorces, Zoom hangouts, and more. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah S., Valentine C., Chloe H., Maria, Amanda S., Angela C., Lisa D., Holly, Sonia T., and Ursula M. Holy cats, y'all are amazing. We really appreciate your support over at Patreon. We appreciate y'all coming back. Stacy. if we have a low-speed chase to get to... <laughs> What have we got to do now? I think we got to go, go, go. Oh, Marsha Clark. Oh, woman Marcia. of many layers. I can't wait for this one. Oh, yes. Alicia, few people have been thrust into the national spotlight or become a household name quite as quickly as Marsha Clark in 1994. Because of her role as a district attorney, she became an integral part of the spectacle and the media circus that was the trial of O.J. Simpson for the grisly double murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. I think most people will remember that. Literally overnight, Marsha Clark went from being a working mother of two with a pretty normal life to being one of the most talked about and criticized people in the country. And with no warning, really, it just, boom. It wasn't just the way that she performed her job that people were interested in. In fact, there were far more conversations, articles, and commentaries about her personal life, her appearance, most of all her hair, just deeply unfair sexist stuff. Shortly after the trial began, media outlets were looking into and covering every detail of her life that they could dig up. Nothing was off limits. The world followed this trial in a way that no trial had been followed before. And although every part of the trial was covered, no one was as closely judged or criticized the same way that lead prosecutor Marsha Clark was. Really not even O.J. Simpson. She was under extreme scrutiny 24 hours a day for almost two years. When the trial was over, she was depleted emotionally and physically. To add to the unbelievable stress of the trial... Marsha Clark was also going through a divorce and a custody battle at the same time. It's terrible. The O.J. Simpson trial is only one part of Marsha Clark's exceptional and occasionally slightly trashy life. She's fit a whole lot of living into her years, including, for our purposes, a couple of divorces. Marsha Rachel Klex was born on August 31st, 1953 in Alameda, California. Oh, that makes so much sense. She's a Virgo. Oh, Okay. Now I get it. All I right. have unlocked Marsha Clark. So she's the daughter of an Israeli immigrant who occasionally went to Temple, which uh, it ended up being reported, of course, that she was from an Orthodox background, and none of that's really true. 
Marcia's family moved around a lot when she was a kid. Her dad worked as a chemist for the Food and Drug Administration. When she was in her teens, her family was living in New York City, and she loved it. She worked at different shops on the Lower East Side. She was thriving. She would hang out in her last years of high school in the East Village. She felt that she had finally found somewhere that she belonged. But then her parents sat her down and said, "Ah, we're moving again. Oh, no. This time to California. And since she was still too young to stay in New York City alone, she had to go with them. Can you imagine just teenager in the East Village? Of course you're having the time of your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Marcia thought that she wanted to pursue acting. However, she was the victim of a crime when she was 17 years old that changed her mind and sent her into the study of law instead. When Marcia was 17 years old, she was traveling in Israel with friends, and she was attacked and sexually assaulted by a waiter that she had briefly met earlier that day, bumped into him later that evening, and he convinced her to go up to his room to listen to music. She had a bad feeling about him, but as a 17-year-old, like she didn't listen to her gut, and she went. Uh, When she tried to leave, he punched her and then attacked her. And as she screamed, he laughed at her and said, no one can hear you. Just a really, uh. yeah. So obviously quite traumatized by this, this event would continue to affect her in many ways. But one major way was that it convinced her to become a lawyer. Later, after becoming a lawyer, she briefly worked in criminal defense and realized that like that does not align with why she got into the law in the first place. She told The Hollywood Reporter about switching to becoming a district attorney, saying, Once I started representing violent criminals, it became a different story for me. Very real. And then I thought, I really want to take care of the victims. So after she returned home from Israel, Marcia started college at UC Riverdale and was completely miserable. Marcia was depressed and the dorm culture that she was in did not work for her. She writes in her 1997 book, Without a Doubt, I hated the life in a girl's dorm. You can understand why. I just come from the village, which was on the cutting edge of everything (laughs) from street fashion to politics. Now, all of a sudden, here I was stuck in a dormitory where my floor mates wore curlers and fuzzy slippers and agonized over whether boys should be allowed to use the girls' bathroom during Sunday visits. Wow. Very different than the East Village. Little culture shock. After a few weeks, though, she was able to transfer to a co-ed dorm and things got a little better. The following year, she transferred to UCLA and found an area that she enjoyed hanging out in, in Los Angeles, the Fairfax District. It was jammed with small restaurants, delis, and was considered to be the center of the Jewish community in Los Angeles. There, she would meet the man who would become her first husband. Oh, love. Yeah, spoilers, but... Marsha Clark does not marry for the right reasons. Oh, no. As we will get into. Anyway, Marsha writes, This was the early 70s. The Six-Day War, which had ended in a huge victory for Israel, was still fresh in the minds of American Jews. Israeli males who streamed to the States in the aftermath carried with them not only the aura of foreignness, but the macho allure of the conqueror. Most of these hotshots found their way to Jewish communities where they felt most at home. In Los Angeles, that was the Fairfax District. So her first marriage is to a man named Gabriel Horowitz. There was one particular deli, Cantor's Deli, that was a favorite hangout for new Israeli immigrants. It was, not surprisingly, also a favorite hangout for young American Jewish girls who wanted to meet these men. 
who seemed far more exotic and alluring than the Jewish boys they had grown up with. Sure. Marcia and her friends enjoyed the Fairfax district, but were not among the young people who went there with the purpose of, like, finding themselves an Israeli man. All these young women were well aware of their appeal, and all of these Israeli men were also quite aware of their appeal. Uh-oh. Yes. Marcia and her friends typically hung out at a small restaurant across the street from Cantor's Deli, so as to not be in the middle of this sort of meat market action that They're I think... They're just watching it from the yes. other side of the street. Yes, we'll be over here, and um, yes. They referred to these men often as sharks. It's a little... Oh, the 70s. And we're not calling this episode fins to the left, <laughs> fins to the right? No. So she and her friends had finished their meal across the street one night when she saw one of the sharks coming their Uh-oh. way. Before she had a chance to tell her friends to ignore him, he had already sat down in the chair next to her and began chatting with the group. Ambitious. She could see that one of her friends across the table was getting shiny-eyed and breathless. Uh So she turned to see the man and she wrote, quote, Sitting next to me was the most incredibly handsome man I had ever seen. And that's how it starts. Yes, his name was Gabriel Horowitz. His friends called him Gabby. Despite her best efforts, Marsha was completely taken, not just for his looks, but also for his charm, wit, and humor. Quote, he spoke to me only in Hebrew, which seemed more intimate than English. About an hour after we'd met, he told me, I'll take you home. It was not an offer. It was an order. All my life, I've had a thing for bad boys. I'm embarrassed even thinking about this, let alone talking (laughs) about it. But I got turned on by that tired old macho, come on, worldly as I considered myself, I was still a kid. In less than a month after meeting, Marsha and Gabby were living together. That's fast. Let's talk about what Gabby does for a living. Okay. Gabby played backgammon for a living. Backgammon was a bit of a craze at the time. This was before my time, I guess. I did not know one could be a professional backgammon player. Same. (laughs) Uh, So he was playing for large stakes in clubs in Beverly Hills and just around the area. And he made a lot of money at these games. Marsha would often go with him to high stakes backgammon. (laughs) God, the 70s were weird. They would stay out all night. Playing backgammon? Backgammoning it up, I guess, and sleep most of the day. This caused Marcia to miss many of her classes. She would do the reading and assignments on her own and was able to keep her grades up. But after she graduated and went on to law school, things had to change. Marcia and Gabby had a very volatile relationship. They would get into yelling matches, but they also got into physical fights. She said that there was never hitting or slapping, but there was a lot of shoving, grabbing, and wrestling. After they had a fight, they would make up and decide to stay together. Healthy. She writes, Somehow we'd both come to equate a display of physical aggression with a demonstration of love. It did not take long for Marcia to start questioning whether this was a healthy relationship for her, but she was busy with work and law school, and the trouble of leaving didn't seem worth it. She would talk herself into staying and overlook all the glaringly obvious problems in their relationship, She wrote in her book, Even now, I'm hard-pressed to explain why I married him. But in its own weird way, getting married made sense at the time. Marrying Gabby was not Marsha's first choice, but Gabby needed a green card to stay in the country. Oh, my. And she figured that since they were clearly staying together, despite all of these pretty bad issues, I mean, why not? She agreed to marry him under the condition that no one would know. Friends, if this is... (laughs) 
This is not why. Uh, hmm. We'll so, get married, but you can't tell anyone. No, but you're just going to be my boyfriend, but we'll get you the green card. So that is what they did. They drove to Las Vegas. They got married and they never told anyone. Wow. About a year later, Gabby started telling Marsha that he wanted to marry her properly. And again, she reluctantly agreed. Well, we're already, I mean, okay, let's have a ceremony, I guess. They had an Orthodox wedding on November 6th, 1976 at her parents' house. She was very sick that day with a high fever and wrote that she was barely conscious and that she kept telling herself, this is not happening. Friends. After she graduated from law school and took the bar exam, the couple decided to treat themselves to a trip to Europe. They went to Italy and to France, and while in Italy, they visited a topless beach. Marcia thought it was fun and did not feel strange about taking her bikini top off. The two posed for a candid shot on that topless beach. They were smiling and enjoying their vacation, but of course, that picture would come back to haunt Marcia years later. I'm on a topless beach. I'm not breaking any rules. In Italy! Living it up, it's the 70s. Your breasts are never going to look better than they did in 1976. Take that photo. I'm a lawyer. My husband's a backgammon player. We're living the life. It's the 70s, man. When they got back, Marcia started working as a lawyer, and the couple were basically living separate lives and operating on completely different schedules. Her career gave Marcia a sense of independence again, and she was able to get stronger and more confident the more time she spent away from her husband. Interesting. Tragically, the backgammon craze was dying down. Oh, and no. so Gabby was suddenly feeling very lost and became depressed. This was a complication for Marsha because she wanted to leave the marriage, but now felt that she couldn't do that while he was suffering and genuinely needed help and support. One of their friends was a devoted Scientologist, Um. and uh, both the friend and Marsha agreed that maybe Scientology could help Gabby. Gabby was reluctant and questioned how they would be able to help him. In order to encourage Gabby to go, Marsha agreed to go with him to check it out. I had no idea. They'd go a few nights a week, but they would take different classes. For Marsha, Scientology was interesting, but nothing that she was going to pursue with any seriousness. Gabby, however, had really bought into this, and Marsha saw that his mood was improving. Soon after discovering Scientology, Gabby started to overcome his depression. (laughs) Hooray. And then Marcia learned that her husband was on the verge of getting kicked out of Scientology. Apparently, women in his classes had been complaining that he was hitting on them. Marcia, oh, Gabby. Mm, Marcia realized that she had to end this relationship. The timing was convenient, too, because she had met the man who would soon become her second husband, again, for all the wrong reasons. Oh, no. And on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about more Scientology, a Tijuana divorce, and a second marriage. This story has everything. See you on the flip. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns, 
Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay, more Scientology. Tia want a divorce. You're speaking my language, Stacey. I, I know, right? So Marsha took no time to enjoy living the single life and all the freedom and the go-go late 70s. She dove right back into a serious relationship with a guy named Gordon Clark. Gordon Clark was an officer in the Church of Scientology. He lived in church housing, and he worked about 14 hours a day for the church. Although she was very much in love with him, she was not in a hurry to get married. However, the Church of Scientology didn't allow romantic relationships between their officers and members of the public who were not, like, deeply affiliated with the church. So if Gordon wanted to keep his job and his standing in Scientology, then they were going to have to get married. Marsha, no. Oh, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. So there was a significant complication, and that was that Marsha was still legally married to Gabby. They had not yet divorced. Mm. Luckily, one of Gordon's fellow Scientologists told the couple that Marsha could go to Tijuana and get herself a quickie divorce. One and done. Game over. Gordon's your guy. She and her brother went to Tijuana. She got the quickie divorce. She was never fully confident that it was legal to do that, but she didn't really care since she was only marrying Gordon because they were required to. They got married the following week. Wow. I know. Marsha. Gordon continued to work for the Church of Scientology. Marsha kind of quickly lost interest in it. She never got past the low levels of Scientology. She said that the initial classes were good, but whatever benefits she got from it, to begin with, they tapered off. She told The Hollywood Reporter, It's actually really instructive at the beginning because it's the greatest hits of the best of meditation and all the best of psychology. It melds it all together and it's very helpful. Once you get past that and you start talking about the mythology, and then she kind of trailed off and shrugged. Interesting. Marsha Clark has also called L. Ron Hubbard bad and says that Scientology is, quote, so amateur hour. However, unlike many other stories that we've heard, she said that she was able to end her connection with Scientology without any problems or backlash. That's wonderful. We covered L. Ron Hubbard. We did, way back. Many moons ago. That guy, super trashy. Yeah. And I assume she was able to end her connection without problems because she was not yet notable in any way. Like, if this had been Marsha Clark post-OJ, I think it would have been a different story. Yeah, that's a blessing. Marsha was working at the L.A. District Attorney's Office and was enjoying building her career. The couple had their first son in 1990 and their second son in 1992. And on June 9th, 1994, Marsha filed for divorce from Gordon Clark. June 9th, 94? Oh, yes. Oh, God. Yes. It really is. So she's got two toddlers. Mm-hmm. What years were her kids born again? I'm sorry. 1990 and 1992. So she has two children under the age of four, filed for divorce June 9th, and then what happens June? Right. Well, she knew mm. that... Getting a divorce here was going to change her life, but she had no idea what was coming. 
just three days later. I had no idea yeah. that her divorce I, and the terrible murders were that close together. Yep. So three days after filing for divorce, Marcia gets a call at work about a double murder that happened in Brentwood the night before. There is a sad and somewhat bizarre twist to Gabby Horowitz's story. A few months after Marcia had left him, she was driving in Beverly Hills and saw him walking on the sidewalk. She wrote that he looked very sad, and she had recently heard that he'd gotten into a fight after a backgammon game. He did backgammon game? He does backgammon. Wow. Several years went by. She didn't hear anything else about him. But about seven years later, she was reading the LA Times one morning and saw that a man named Gabriel Horowitz had suffered a gunshot wound to the head. <gasps> Marsha was shocked and asked a detective friend to check it out and see if it was her ex-husband. A few days later, he told her that Gabby and a friend had been looking at guns. When the one his friend was holding went off, ricocheted oh. off the ceiling and then lodged into Gabby's head. Oh, my God. This was a freak accident. Gabby was badly injured, but he did survive the shooting. On to the golden age of true crime with, of course, the trial of the century, the O.J. Simpson trial. The O.J. Simpson trial was not the first time that Marcia Clark experienced unfair treatment in a courtroom, but she had never experienced anything on the level of what was coming for her during this highest profile trial in the country. She told Vogue that prior to the OJ trial, she had dealt with a fair degree of sexism, but that it was never the primary focus of a trial. Obviously, all of that was going to change when she was prosecuting a football hero turned entertainer and appearing on national television every day. As the only woman on either side of the case, she was subjected to sexism on a scale that was both blatant and cruel. Off the charts. The worst part was that it was not only tolerated by Judge Lance Ito, who was, you know, leading the trial, and the media, but they were all engaged in perpetrating it. Ito, the press, everyone. The focus on Marsh's appearance throughout the trial was extreme, and it was something that the men involved never had to deal with. The attention and coverage that her hairstyles got was just incredible. It was the middle of a trial for a brutal double murder of two innocent people. And what the media found most compelling was Marcia Clark's hair that day. Just gross. Prior to the Simpson case, Marcia had changed her hairstyle to a short, relatively tight perm. She chose this because she had two young children and a busy job. But over the course of the trial, her hair grew. When she showed up for court the day after changing her hair, the media went wild. She said that her hair choices were made completely out of practicality and there was nothing at all to analyze, but that didn't stop endless, breathless coverage and critique of her new look. She told New York Magazine, It was wash and wear hair. It was easy. I had two boys in diapers and I right. didn't want to be bothered. That's why I had the perm. I did the hair because I had no choice. I mean, my perm grew out. That's why I cut the hair. I didn't have time to get it permed again. Not sure if y'all have ever litigated or prosecuted a pretty big case. I got some things going on in my life. Yeah, her hair, her clothing, how tired she looked, all of this were topics of conversation in the press. She's got two kids and going through a divorce. God mm -hmm. bless her. Yeah, pundits had takes, late night comedians had jokes. Marsha was criticized and torn apart for her hair and clothing choices while the all-male O.J. Simpson crew were dubbed the Dream Team. 
Sure. Bunch of guys in suits. The coverage and ridicule she received about her looks got so bad that even her boss asked her if she wanted an image consultant to help her improve her arrival, maybe get the media off her back. According to Marsha telling Us Weekly, the consultant said that she should talk and dress softer and consider buying a pastel wardrobe. A 1995 Washington Post op-ed. Can you imagine being the subject of a Washington Post op-ed just because of your because job? Because of how you look? Well, also, yeah. yes, because, yeah. Quote, everyone is watching the lawyer with the large, dark eyes drawn by her black skirt, which is pleated and swings a strange thing in a courtroom, <laughs> yeah, of papers and suits. Again, everybody, this is a lawyer prosecuting a brutal double murder. Focus. Focus, people. The piece goes on to describe Marcia in terms that are almost literary and poetic. Instead of depicting her as a capable and talented lawyer and human being who's doing her job under extremely difficult circumstances, she's described this way, quote, Men call her a hopeless flirt, a screeching wife, a bad mom, a shrill litigator. But she eludes them all, vividly contradictory. So sexy, so uptight, so serene, so snappish, so tired, so busy. Marcia Clark's parenting was also called into question. Remember, she was going through what turned into a pretty bruising divorce, and her ex used the number of hours that she had to work on the case as a reason why he should be awarded primary custody of their two young sons, saying that he would be home by 6 p.m. every night. Gordon Clark filed court documents about custody, stating, I have personal knowledge that on most nights she does not arrive home until 10 p.m., and even when she is home, she's working. I was always there for our children and assumed at least equal responsibility for their care. While I commend Marcia's brilliance, her legal ability, and her tremendous competence as an attorney, I do not want our children to continue to suffer because she is never home and never has any time to spend with them. Obviously, the very long hours that Marcia Clark needed to work during the trial were not ideal for a parent, but no one ever accused or suggested or implied that any of the men in the case were unfit parents due to their workload or the hours that they were away from their kids. The amount of criticism that she got regarding her parenting led her to release the following statement. Quote, I am devoted to my two children, who are far and away more important to me than anything. I feel it is inappropriate of me to discuss details of my marital dissolution case or child custody issues in the media. Please, people, back off. That's the TLDR. When Marsha was unable to stay late one day due to childcare issues, Johnny Cochran came very close to openly mocking her and accusing her of using her kids as a ploy to buy time. Good lord. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure we've covered Johnny Cochran, and I'm pretty sure he had like two or three secret families. So, he... In addition to all the pastel suits, yes, that's what yes. I recall to you. Yes. So Marsha did not let this go, saying, quote, Your Honor, I am offended by Mr. Cochran's remarks as a woman and as a mother. Mr. Cochran may not know what it's like to work a 70-hour work week and also take care of a family. He really did not know what that was like. But I do, and many other people do too. To belittle my child care issues in your courtroom is unconscionable and totally out of line. Eventually, Marsha and Gordon were able to come to an agreement regarding the custody of their sons, and so at least that was off the table for her. Marsha was constantly disrespected by Judge Lance Ito throughout the trial. 
who also allowed O.J. Simpson's defense attorneys to treat her disrespectfully as well. She told Vulture, Obviously, I was aware that the media was giving me a bad time about my appearance. They slammed my hair, my makeup, and I didn't care, because what I cared about was that jury. And so what was hugely upsetting to me was the sexist treatment I got from the judge. Yes. Yeah. She worried that her being treated like a second-class citizen in the courtroom would cause the jurors to view her differently, and how couldn't it? She wanted, and she deserved, to be taken seriously, but she was undermined throughout the trial. One way that Ito did this was to refer to Johnny Cochran as Mr. Cochran or Robert Shapiro as Mr. Shapiro, while Marsha Clark, he just referred to as Marsha. Yeah. Yeah. That's not any kind of different weird treatment. No. At one point, Johnny Cochran even called her hysterical. Obviously, she took issue with that description and called it a sexist remark. O.J. Simpson laughed. The Los Angeles chapter of the National Organization of Women wrote several complaints regarding Lance Ito's treatment of Marsha Clark. A few of the complaints filed were about Ito making a comment about the length of Clark's skirt and how he remained complicit when the defense attorneys called Clark overly emotional. Tammy Bruce, the L.A. chapter president, spoke to Judge Ito about his treatment of Marsha Clark. She provided video evidence demonstrating how Ito had treated the men in the courtroom compared to how he treated Clark. In 2016, around the time that the FX miniseries about the trial came out, Marsha Clark did an interview with Andy Cohen, and he asked about this situation. Marsha said that Tammy Bruce's involvement helped things for her, but only briefly, saying, And that actually brought him around for a couple of weeks. I got to find out what it was like to be treated like an equal in the courtroom. Mm. Didn't last, but it was nice. This is another good spot to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to get into some betrayal by an ex-mother-in-law. Oh, no. Back in a minute, friends. Alicia, remember the topless photos that, you know, had been snapped? Well, Marsha... Because nobody was doing anything wrong on my European vacation on a topless beach. Yeah, Yeah. first husband on an Italian beach. Well... They ended up on the cover of the National Enquirer with the caption, The tough legal eagle as the world has never seen her, a carefree young woman enjoying fun, sun, and the good life while romping on the world's playgrounds. Shouldn't she have that? Come on. Marsha was mortified, and she assumed that it had to have been Gabby who sold the pictures. But what she went on to discover was it was actually Gabby's mother, Clara Horowitz. Yikes. She thought she may have done it because she was bitter about what had happened to Gabby, but the story was a little different. She wrote, I later learned that a private eye, hoping to curry favor with the dream team, OJ's lawyers, Oh no. had tracked her down in Israel and put her in touch with the Inquirer. This incident very nearly brought Marcia to her breaking point. Fortunately, this was one of the only times that Lance Ito responded with any kind of empathy. She wrote in, without a doubt, I overestimated my own strength. No sooner had I taken my seat at the council table, I felt the tears welling up in my eyes. Lance must have caught my distress because in a singular act of compassion, he quickly managed to recess court for the day. You may remember that there were some rumors about Marsha Clark and her co-chair Chris Darden. Throughout the trial, there was another source of gossip and speculation, and this was about whether Marsha and Christopher Darden had become romantically involved in the heat of the case. Clearly, these two were spending long hours together working as a team to accomplish a common goal. Those certainly are conditions that, you know, can lead to closeness, perhaps some romantic feelings. 
1997, when she wrote her book, she acknowledged all of the things that had been said about her and Darden. She didn't acknowledge any romantic relationship, but ended with this. Fact of the matter is, Chris Darden and I were closer than lovers. And unless you've been through what we went through, you can't possibly know what that means. Yep, I get that. In 2020, Marsha was a guest on The Ellen DeGeneres Show and was still a little vague when asked about this. Ellen said, you and Chris Darden, no one really knew if you had some kind of romantic relationship. Seems like y'all had a relationship. And I don't know if that went anywhere, but it seemed like he was in love with you. Yikes. Marsha replied, it didn't seem that way to me. We were really partners. We were trench mates. He wasn't my second chair. We were co-counsel and he was my partner. And I can't tell you how important it was to have him there. In 2016, Chris Darden talked to Entertainment Tonight and also didn't really say either way, leaving some room for interpretation with his comments. When he was asked if he and Marsha were more than friends, he said, we were more than friends. We were inseparable back then. Yeah. When the follow-up question was to describe his relationship with Clark, he chose the word fire. The interviewer said that fire definitely had romantic connotations. He replied, I don't think fire's romantic. I think fire's passion. His final comment was that Marsha Clark was a fabulous woman and a fabulous lawyer. Alicia, because this happened in America, there is, of course, a Kardashian angle. Of course. Mm -hmm. It may be hard for most Americans to think of Kris Jenner prior to the fame of the Kardashians as a television enterprise. But way before all of that, before Kendall and Kylie were even born, she had her own role in the O.J. Simpson trial. Kris Jenner had been close friends with Nicole Brown Simpson. They met because her then-husband, Robert Kardashian, and O.J. were good friends, So Kris Jenner and Nicole Brown become very good friends. Nicole is working at the Daisy. Right. My done and done listeners know this. Nicole meets OJ. Kris is dating Kardashian. So Nicole and Kris had been friends since about 1977. Okay. Long lasting friendship. Right. So yeah, even after their divorces, the two women remained very close. The trial caused a lot of tension for Robert Kardashian and Kris Jenner, as you can imagine, Chris felt that O.J. Simpson had murdered one of her best friends and Robert was on O.J.'s defense team. Kind of a divide there. When Marsha was asked whether Chris Jenner had been helpful during the trial, she replied, quote, she was very helpful. She was the one who kind of marshaled the forces and got the women who knew about him abusing Nicole, witnesses to his abuse, and brought them forward. She actually had a statement from Nicole saying, I know he's going to kill me. And I wanted to put it on. I wanted to put it on as testimony. However, under the circumstances, in order to get a statement like that in there, Nicole would have to be saying, he's coming for me. He's coming to kill me now. It can't just be, you know, we're having wine. Hey, I know he's going to kill me, unfortunately. Marsha also had thoughts on Chris's ex-husband. When asked if Robert Kardashian had ever expressed doubt about Simpson's innocence, she said, he would never say it to me. He's a pro, but I could see the change. I could see him having more and more trouble as the case wore on, as more evidence came out. I think he started out to be a true believer. My friend couldn't do it. I could see the shift. I could see the trouble in his eyes. On October 3rd, 1995, O.J. Simpson was found not guilty of murdering Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. Approximately 150 million people were watching as the verdict was read. It was such a large audience that phone companies actually recorded a 60% decrease 
because everyone was glued to their television and not talking on the phone. Understandably, Marsha was exhausted after the O.J. Simpson trial was over. Not only had she been dealing with the intense pressure and complete desperation of the circumstances she was facing, but she had also fought through a custody battle at the same time. In addition to being exhausted, she was being criticized even more heavily after the trial because people blamed her for the acquittal. She didn't just need a break from the L.A. District Attorney's office. Um, She wanted to never come back. She spoke about her experience relatively soon after the trial ended and published her book without a doubt two years later. As the years went on, she was able to articulate the effects that all of it had on her even more. In 2016, she told The Hollywood Reporter, that the Simpson trial was, quote, an endless study in torture and pain every single day. Mm. She resigned from the L.A. District Attorney's office following the trial, explaining, I couldn't even think of going back there. The misery was so profound, the ugliness I had been through. When my overtime and vacation ran out, I had my office packed up. I never went back. I had no idea. Yeah. But recovering from the stress and trauma of the trial wasn't as easy as just quitting her job. Marcia has said that she fell into a depression after she realized that her career as a prosecutor was over and struggled with what her next steps would be, writing, quote, that's who I was, a prosecutor. I really loved it, but I couldn't do it. I was afraid to do it even because I was afraid I'd go into court and juries would either hate me or be unfairly sympathetic. Marcia moved to the suburbs with her sons and tried to forge a semi-normal life. She spent the first few years after the trial writing her book. She appeared on several media outlets during the time of the book's release, uh, including getting the full hour-long Oprah treatment. Oh, wow. Yeah. And writing didn't stop with her memoir. She's now written 12 books, many of them fiction, featuring strong female attorneys. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. She told The Hollywood Reporter that writing helped her in, quote, finding a new direction and also finding a way to tell the truth. There's nothing like writing fiction to tell the truth. Marsha's also been a legal commentator on countless shows, sharing her expert opinion on legal issues going on and high-profile trials like Casey Anthony and George Zimmerman. She had a true crime show on A&E called Marsha Clark Investigates, The First 48. She's also the co-creator of the 2019 TV show The Fix, and she's a frequent guest on talk shows like The View, Good Morning America, and sometimes even appears on game shows like Hollywood Squares. Really? Yeah. Interesting. In 2016, of course, we watched a lot of this together. Sarah Paulson portrayed Marsha Clark in the American crime story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. When it came time for the Emmys, Sarah Paulson invited Marsha Clark to go as her guest. Oh, that's nice. Sarah Paulson won the Emmy for Best Actress in a Miniseries, and tears welled in Marsha's eyes as Sarah gave her acceptance speech, saying, quote, The responsibility of playing a real person is an enormous one. The more I learned about the real Marsha Clark, not the two-dimensional cardboard cutout I saw on the news, but the complicated, whip-smart, giant-hearted mother of two who woke up every day, put both feet on the floor, and dedicated herself to righting an unconscionable wrong, the more I had to recognize that I, along with the rest of the world, had been superficial and careless in my judgment. I'm proud to be able to stand here today in front of everyone and tell you, I'm sorry. Speaking for everyone. So, Alicia, giving the last word there to Sarah Paulson, who admirably portrayed Marsha Clark in that series. That is the Marsha Clark story and how, oh my gosh, all of those conflicting currents coincided at the O.J. Simpson trial and 
battling a custody fight while also becoming one of the most famous people in the world through that trial had to have been brutal, brutal stuff. She's a remarkable soul, I think. Yeah. How many trash cans? Wow. I don't think she gets any trash cans, but like the world should probably, the press, Lance Ito, us as viewers should probably, I don't know. Throw her a halo or two. She gets halos. All the rest of us get, you know, tons and tons of trash cans. Hundreds of millions of trash cans. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Stacy. Thank you for that one. You're very welcome. And thank you, friends, for tuning in this week. We are always happy to have you here. Be sure you're subscribed to our other two podcasts coming out of Hemlock Creatives these days. We've got Trashy Royals. That is a ton of fun. We're in the middle of the Romanovs. Done and done as well to get in on that particular line of investigation. We'll be back with Patreon this week for you with the Dumpster Dive. All kinds of fun stuff happening over there. Don't forget you can check that out at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. I will be back mm-hmm. this Wednesday with a brand new pipe and fresh marital misadventure for you. Excellent. Until then, friends, thanks again for joining us today. Until we meet again, keep those hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy, friends. Very, very trashy. Big love, everybody. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.